On Racing HQ, Monday's Experts, studying the form of racing's characters. Monday's Experts, he'd have always got the good old pity you can't put a bet on at the finish of a race. Welcome to Monday's Experts. So first off, big thanks to Mick Guerin for his efforts and thoughts there on the pace on Sky Sports Radio on this Monday morning. And as always at this time on a Monday, it's an opportunity for us to find out a little bit about the story behind the name. And a name we're going to mention in this next half an hour is a name that we've been seeing pop up for many, many a moon here in Sydney, Jamie Walter. But more prominently over the weekend, we saw Jamie... Even in that little intro there, that little filler, uh, chatting then with Greg Radley after winning the 2023 Tab Everest with, of course, a horse that he syndicated under proven thoroughbreds, both private eye and think about it in that finish and, of course, uh, winning the big race. But it's interesting because, as we know, with all of our chats on Monday's Experts, everyone has a story. And I'm really keen to hear what Jamie's story is and also looking ahead to the future of proven thoroughbreds and the family aspect of that particular business. Jamie, welcome to Monday's Experts on Sky. How are you, mate? Very well, thanks, Dave. A little bit dusty still and a bit weary, but uh, I've generally scrubbed up all right. How was Saturday night? Uh, was it uh, was it more of a... Obviously, it was a party, but was it also a bit of relief because the build-up to the race was something probably you've never experienced before? 100% days. The build-up for an Everest is like nothing I'd experienced before. We did it for the first time last year with Private Eye, but it was sort of an afterthought, really, whereas this year, we think about it having been locked in months ago and Private Eye securing his position a month ago. Uh, we had plenty of time to plan, and racing New South Wales... Manage a, a terrific build-up to this race, and uh, it was no different this year. We were all highly excited. I can tell you. I could imagine. Uh, for, did, has it sunk in yet, or do you think it'll still take a few days, or is it, has it sunk in maybe yesterday morning? Probably going to take a few days, actually, Dave, because I'm sure you're aware I've been doing this a very long time. And I've never had horses of this quality, particularly at the same time. It's quite extraordinary to have two such outstanding horses. Uh, so, yeah, the reality of it is probably going to take a while to, uh, to totally sink in. Let's talk about your career in life. Uh, you, From reading a little bit about you last night, you've got a passion for the, the horse and you're actually very good in your younger years at um, shows and pony club um, out in the central west of New South Wales. So the the love of the horse has been around for a long, long time. Yes, Dave. I don't know whether I was very good at those equestrian pursuits, but I was certainly a keen participant and, and really enjoyed it. But then I guess like a lot of teenage boys, I got more interested in cricket and footy. Mm-hmm. And they sort of took more of my interest, but I always retained a very strong interest in racing and, and I was, loved the punt. Yeah, I, I was going to say, so is that something that uh, you can remember? Can you remember the first your first days of having a punt or can you remember uh, your first days of going to the track? 
Oh, yeah. I, I, very much so. Uh, I took a very keen interest in the punt, um, very modest amounts, I can tell you. And I don't know if I was very good at it, Dave, but <laughs> <laughs> it certainly wasn't without trying. And the, the whole sort of intellectual challenge of trying to work out why a horse was going to win or, you know, how a race was going to unfold, why something couldn't win, uh, I found really intriguing because, as you know, there were literally hundreds of variables mm. that can impact on a horse's performance. What was it uh, about the horse that you fell in love with, away from all the, I guess, the, the science behind uh, the pun, and I'm very much the same. I, I, I'm actually, what I get fascinated in is that, um, and you would know this from working closely with people um, like Joe and, and other trainers that train for you, you could have a horse absolutely perfect, look at the race 10 times over, have every form expert say, your horse is going to win, and then literally the gates could open. Uh, there could be, it might knuckle at the start, the horse and the barrier beside you might, you know, jam you up and squeeze you out or you slowly, any, it, it's incredible how much sort of luck you need to go your way, um, even when you've got these horses trained to the nth degree. Absolutely, Dave. There's literally, as I say, hundreds of variables that can influence performance and even at my age and stage after doing this for so many years, I'm still learning. I'm still finding there are new ways to get beat. <laughs> uh, but that's part of the intrigue of the game, I think, because we're dealing with animals that can't speak. And because they're flesh and blood, like us, they have their on and off days. They have their particular personality quirks and likes and dislikes and and trying to figure them out is one of the uh, one of the major challenges of a good trainer I think mm. and Joe Pride is is a hands-on highly intelligent guy who's a very keen observer of the horse and he although not having had a horse background as a kid uh, he's very much in tune with with equine instincts. Very much so. I think there's a lot of... I mean, Joe Pride's his own man, but, I, gee, there's a lot of John size uh, in Joe Pride as well. And I think that uh, he's obviously absorbed... Well, he's absorbed a lot of good minds around him, Joe, but then he's also made them his own. And uh, he's got that knack for understanding his horses, very much so. Um Jamie, let's talk about your life. So you've um, you've grown up. We mentioned that you were uh, in the um, in that the shows and pony club. You've had a, a love of the punt. You've always had an interest in horses. But your career uh, as work, you actually were involved in radio. And Tanya, one of my producers, remembers you from uh, the the days at Two KY. Early, you were doing some advertising. I think you did some voiceovers for Val Morgan. She was saying, "I know that you were on Two U W and Triple M." So you've you've got a love for announcing and presenting. Yes, yeah, something I got into quite fortuitously uh, when I finished school uh, because I was able to to get a job at Two MG Mudgee, my old hometown, and started work there a couple of weeks after my HSC and so I 
I postponed any any university courses I was eligible for, and uh, about seven or eight years later, I was still in radio. So uh, and and loving it, I went from 2MG to 2BS, the sister station in Bathurst, and then to 2ST Nowra, 2UW in Sydney, which was a buzz. And uh, then I went overseas and, and worked in racing stables in the UK and the US and returned and started working at Triple M. And I was harbouring thoughts of being a, a race caller because I wasn't a very good disc jockey, Dave. Mm-hmm. I was no Doug Mulray. And I could foresee that I wasn't passionate enough about music radio to stay involved. So I I turned my attention to uh, racing and I did voiceovers as a sort of complement to that, if you like. Mm-hmm. For a while there, I was, a, I was a, a voiceover person and a professional punter and soon, <laughs> soon realised I wasn't going to make a quit out of professional punting. <laughs> so so uh, uh, then I got into the financial markets. A few friends of mine were involved in that industry and said because of the speculative component of that game that it would suit me. And I was a futures trader on the floor of the Sydney Futures Exchange for about a decade. Mm-hmm. All the time I was very involved in racing because I owned horses through the uh, 1980s. First horse I bought was when I was 21 at the old English stables out there at Kensington. I paid $900 for a horse that subsequently won three in town. Jeez. It was a horse called Doc Alter. And, uh, Any price first start? Uh, no, he was well found first up. Okay. <laughs> he was trained at Newcastle. But, um, yeah, so I'd owned plenty of horses and knew the game. And, of course, uh, I had a lot to do with my late brother, Guy. Uh, we we shared a passion for racing. And uh, I, for a while I was working for Guy on a part-time, part-time basis. I was booking jockeys. I was a strapper in the mornings. This was probably in the 90, latter part of the 90s when Guy's career was really taking off. And he was a great influence on my racing knowledge. Great trainer. Um, very humble man. Immensely popular amongst his peers. And uh, we lost him too early days in... 2014, nine years ago now. Yeah, we did. I don't think I just started. I wasn't long starting at Sky, and I was going to mention Guy because when things like Saturday happen in your life, uh, and this happens for me when I, you know, get to get to go and do things, and you know, meet jockeys, meet trainers, and travel the world. Um, I wish I could ring and talk to, you know, the person that was most influential for me, which was my grandfather, which I've spoken about before. And I'm sure Saturday, and I'm sure you won't mind me saying this, Jamie, if you could pick up the phone and talk to anyone Saturday night and probably say, can you bloody believe it? It probably would have been Guy. For sure, Dave. Yeah. No, uh, I, I often think of Guy because he was instrumental in in 
launching proven thoroughbreds, which I started in 2001, and he was a great help to me. He trained, of course, all our early horses, and first horse we ever syndicated under proven thoroughbreds, I, as I say, I've owned horses previously, but under the proven banner, was a little horse called Market Unit. And a couple of my old mates who bought into that horse are involved in, think about it. Wow. A nice synergy. And Market Unit won his first start at Warwick Farm for us and went on and won a Golden Cup by five lengths, beautifully ridden by a young apprentice called Hugh Bundon. <laughs> yeah. so, wow. So, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, Guy was... Guy was fantastic for me and an immense source of knowledge and a, 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 a great um, a, a great teacher of, of all things to do with racing. I learned just so much from him. What do you think he would have said to you Saturday after winning that race? That's a good question. Um, maybe about time. Yeah, because he was also very wicked. I remember meeting him in the early days of the track work and he was just so dry and, but as you said, so humble and, and a lovely gentleman. Um, and uh, even though he mightn't have been there in person, he was there in spirit on Saturday and he was probably enjoying what he was seeing unfold there at Royal Randwick. Why the name Proven Thoroughbreds? Who picked the name? Well, I did because we started off just buying tried horses probably all we could afford and I kind of figured we, we weren't able to compete in the yearling sale ring at that stage so buying tried horses gave us a bit of an opportunity and I was trying to purchase horses that I felt Guy could improve market unit was one there were a few others along the way Gerard Swanky C this is going right back. But I, over time, Dave, I, I learned that you really had to buy yearlings to be competitive in Sydney. And, and why is that? What, what changed your mindset? Well, the tri-horse market wasn't as liquid as it is today. Today, uh, you know, shares in tried horses and... and and tried horses, period, have come up on that English digital sale and the Magic Millions equivalent, you know, every couple of weeks. So, uh, and they have a lot of reach to those sales. So you can you can buy a tried horse uh, a lot more uh, problem-free than, than we could in the old days when you're sort of fronting the connections of uh, original connections of the horse and trying to buy it from them. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's how the, the name started. But uh, like I say, we only periodically purchase a, a, a tried horse these days. I haven't really got into that imported market yet because I I I don't know enough about the uh, the overseas form. Mm-hmm. And probably don't have the right sort of network over there to to uh, direct me in, in the right right places. We're chatting this morning with Jamie Walter, of course the um, the well, I can call you the CEO, director of of Proven Thoroughbreds, of course, um, which have, were successful 
in the Everest on the weekend, the Tab Everest with uh, not only um, uh, Think About It uh, winning the Tab Everest, but also Private Eye running an exceptional race. And they will now match off in the Giga Kick, which will be in a couple of weeks' time. But tell us a little bit about the people that are involved with Proven Thoroughbreds. And obviously all syndicating companies have slightly different approaches. Uh, but one thing I've noticed with Proven, Jamie, is that you've got a lot of long-term clients, like you've just mentioned before. Some of the people in your first-ever horses uh, are now still in Think About It and no doubt have others, uh, other horses with other stables around the country. But um, what's your approach when you're at the yearling sales? Well, I always like to buy in tandem with the trainers, if at all possible, Dave. Uh, I sort of take the view that they're the ones getting up in the middle of the night to work these horses. They uh, they really want to like what they're working. And having them involved intimately in the purchasing process gives them skin in the game, if you like. And... Uh, that's something we we make a point of with both Joe Pride, Steve O'Day and Matt Hoisted and and more recently Kerry Parker. They're our three trainers. And, yeah, uh, the, we, we look at hundreds and hundreds of yearlings, do a lot of research on pedigrees. And you're relying, too, a lot on what you've seen in the past and some of the farms you've come across and, and, and dealt with previously. Syndication, uh, like any other business in racing, any other business, full stop, is, is all about relationships. And with you mentioned some of the long-term owners we were fortunate enough to have um, built relationships with. And that's what I'd like to do even more of in the future. Why have you only got the three trainers? Because I like to have uh, a close relationship with those three trainers, and all three of them bring different cards to the table, Dave. Mm-hmm. Joe is our is our principal metropolitan trainer in Sydney. My late brother Guy said to me when we were when I had horses with him in about two thousand and eight or nine, he said, "Look, you've really got to get a trainer in Brisbane." Because there are horses down here that can run fourth or fifth that could be winning up there. So we identified Steve O'Day, who was trained by himself in those days, and been with Steve now for 14, 15 years, and that's worked really well. Um, couldn't see myself uh, teaming up with any other trainer in Brisbane, and uh, we were, for a while there were. We were there with John Bateman at Golden. John was Guy's ex-foreman down there, mm-hmm. and felt compelled to support John. John was probably would still be happy to be Guy's foreman, but he was forced into the role of training. So we felt compelled to support him. And then, when he retired a couple of years ago, it gave us an opportunity to um, team up with Kerry. Yeah, Kerry's, Kerry brings something to the table because he's a provincial trainer. And all these racing New South Wales incentives now to have horses trained on the provincial circuit uh, were attractive, and he can also access country courses too with horses. 
That's exactly right. We're chatting this morning uh, with Jamie Walter. I want to, and there's a text on the text line about this, and it's great that we've got some interaction from our audience. The colours. Why did you choose the the black with the lime? Well, I've actually had those since the 1980s, Dave, and I, and I landed on them because I was looking for something that would stand out, and I felt a lot of the pastel colours. You're watching on this is in the pre-high definition television days. A lot of uh, in a quivering Australian sun, all those pastel colours sort of move in, meld into each other, and black with with lime green uh, we felt would really stand out. There you go. Uh, what about the future? So obviously you've you've made more purchases at the uh, sales just gone with Easter and whatnot. You're always looking to expand. So your price range, though, and I, I, I've found an interesting little uh, tweet that you put out uh, recently in relation to this about to that you – look, it's it's your model that you're not looking to go and break the bank on, on yearlings. You'd rather, you know, get in and, and buy the ones that might not be as fashionable on the page, but, boy, oh, boy, they can give you the results. Yeah, well, thanks, Dave. Um, we've been doing it a long time, and like any business, you've got to constantly be examining what you're doing, hoping to do it better. And it's interesting, about five or six years ago, the late Steve Brim, who was a, a, a very respected bloodstock agent in Sydney, worked as a racing manager for Gay Waterhouse for a while. He managed Waikato, started in New Zealand for number of years. Great fella and immensely knowledgeable. He, next to Guy, he would have been the biggest influence on my career, I think. And so I went to Steve and I said, look, I'm getting winners. They're not quality winners. I'm not getting group winners. What, what can you advise me? And he said, buy more horses and spend more money. <laughs> <laughs> I said, that's easy for you to say. Anyway, I've, I've plunged into a pool of red ink and I've lived in it ever since, Dave. <laughs> is it been uh, something that uh, you... Is there anything you would change along the way? Or uh, obviously, um, you know, with the success of the weekend, no. But is there any sort of... Was there a sliding, any more sliding door moments you can think of? Not really. I think... Most things of any sort of significance and quality in racing tend to happen gradually. You know, whether it's the development of a trainer or a rider or a horse and and the syndication business needs to primarily, you know, serve the public and build up clientele and establish a, an integrity in, in a highly competitive marketplace. So no more sliding doors really, but as I say, when you're in this business, you you have to be constantly self-critical and ask, how can we do this better? How can we provide a better service? How can we put more criteria into our selection process? Uh, all those things you've got to be constantly aware of. I guess leading then to the future, your family involved in the business, it's great, must be great to have your son involved. I can't tell you how much pleasure that gives me, Dave. I mean, I know some family businesses turn to custard when things go wrong, but I've been very fortunate to have 
my oldest son, Tom, part of the business in the last few years. He, of course, was a journalist at RaceNet prior to that. So he had a pretty reasonable foundation of knowledge in racing, which he's building on constantly. And he's, he's brought a lot of uh, contemporary thinking to the business. He's much smarter in the IT. IT uh, sphere than his old man, and he's a smart thinker. So uh, I'm I'm tickled pink to have him involved. Where do you see the future now for proven thoroughbreds? Well, Dave, I think one of the reasons I got into syndication all those years ago was that I recognised because of the cost of it. When I was your age and younger, there were. You know, groups of three or four mates from the pub would raise a horse. And, you know, old wealthy graziers or, you know, successful businessmen from the city as individuals would raise horses. I could see those days going because of the expense. And whilst nowadays you still have three or four mates from a, from a sporting club or something in, involved in, in, a, in a syndicate, they're part of a managed group of... 20-odd, and the individuals owning racehorses is just about gone. But the owners of, of tomorrow and increasingly today are syndicates and the major studs. Mm. So from a future perspective, you know, we've got to obviously try and expand because for every think about it and and private eye we have, there's... A lot of slow ones, Dave. A lot, a lot of owners who aren't getting the right outcome that they're looking for. But we've got to try and make the journey enjoyable and informative mm. if, if we can't promise, you know, the desired outcome. Do you feel as though uh, your business now, because it's you've won the biggest, you know, you've won the world's richest turf race and one of the biggest races in the country, do you feel like your... Um, your not customer expectations, but uh, uh, it sounds like you're very mindful of that. And obviously, you'd be telling your customers that, saying, "Look, yes, we've won the Everest, but not every horse is going to win the Everest that we purchase." Absolutely, um, I think the whole game, Dave, is about management of expectations. I once said to a good mate of mine. Years ago, when he asked me what I did, I said I'm a manager of disappointment, <laughs> and that's that's what I'm doing for a lot of the part of the day because there are so many issues when you've got about 100 horses under management, which is our sort of current figure. There are problems constantly, which you've got to solve and manage and deal with. But I find racing's a great metaphor for life, Dave, because how you respond to any event in life is so closely linked to your expectations. So, for example, if I've got a debutante that's trialled the house down and everyone fancies it first up and the trainer and I are telling the owners it can't get beat, anything less than victory becomes a failure. Mm. Rather than, this horse has done everything right, we really think he's going to run well. Which is kind of how we felt before Saturday's Everest, things had gone so well. But 
you, you you can't say you're over the line. You know, you've you, you've got to you've got to convince particularly the less experienced owners that, as we we said at the initial part of this discussion, so many things can go wrong. So many factors are beyond your control when you're dealing with animals that can't speak. So. Um, yeah, I see management of expectations as a key part of my job. Before we wrap it up, Jamie, I've got to ask you uh, your thoughts on the industry. Obviously, it's sensational uh, what's what's happening in our game, but one thing uh, you mentioned before with your business, you're always looking to reflect and improve, and no doubt they're doing that at Race in New South Wales all the time, it, it appears. Uh, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges facing our game? Well, look, I'm, I'm sounding like everyone else in the industry when I say, look, we need to get this Victorian-New South Wales standoff solved, and, and, and it will be solved. It's just a matter of time. But one of the great things about Australian racing, Dave, it's a mainstream sport here. It's not niche like it is in, in, in other parts, other parts of the world where, where racing's relatively big. It's it's they're niche sports in the US, France, to a lesser extent the UK. Here, it's mainstream. Everyone's interested. And we've got to make sure we engage people, particularly young people, and educate them that racing is not a cruel business. Horses most horses enjoy racing and they're beautifully looked after. So that welfare thing is a, is a challenge. But on a more specific note, I just want to make sure that Australian racing is still the domain of the battler. It doesn't become controlled by a handful of people, which is the state of play in, in Europe, for example. Here, you know, what, what do we have, five or six um, Syndicated horses yeah. in Saturday's race. How good's that? Mm. And that's that's a fair reflection of what Australian racing's about. Now, on the same night as we held the Everest in the UK was the Dewhurst Stakes. It's the equivalent of their Golden Slipper. You know, you're not allowed to start in that if you're a, you've got a gelding. Mm. They've all got to be Colts. Same with the English Derby, which. To me, that's that's divisive. That's that's not allowing the battler to get involved. And I hope that Australian racing retains that ethos of looking after the average bloke in racing. And before I let you go, I always ask all of my guests this, Jamie. What would you say if you were standing right now in front of a, a young 18-year-old, Jamie Walter, what advice would you give him? I'd say, notwithstanding the positive impact that my careers in radio and financial markets were to, to my um, now-chosen field as a syndicator, I probably would have said, get into syndication a little bit earlier because I love it so much. I'm very passionate, Dave. I'm very fortunate to love what I do. And I have no regrets, but 
if I'd got into it a touch earlier, I probably would have um, achieved more to date. It's been sensational to talk to you. It was lovely to see how it all unfolded on Saturday. And I think you even made the comment before Saturday, win, lose or draw. You were there on the big stage with two sensational horses. And I look forward to seeing them go around at Rose Hill in the Giga Kick. Jamie Walter, thank you for coming on Monday's Experts. My pleasure, Dave.